episode 51, Ray Reddy from Armada Healthcare talks about specialty pharmacy providers and biosimilars. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. They are not your daddy's specialty pharmacies, SPPs, in other words, specialty pharmacy providers, today are getting into a host of wraparound services, including home infusions, infusion clinics, and patient hubs that they really have never been involved in in the past. My guest today is Ray Reddy from Armada Healthcare, a very large GPO or group purchasing organization and service provider serving SPPs today. Ray talks about the why and how behind the evolution of SPPs and SPP networks. Then we get into biosimilars, the burning questions from both a pharma and a payer perspective. Ray is a goldmine of actionable knowledge. I hope you find it as interesting as I always do whenever I have the opportunity to speak with Ray. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin Healthcom. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Ray. Thank you very much, Stacey. Appreciate being here. So you just returned from the big Armada Summit. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. This was Armada 15. This was our uh, actual 10th anniversary meeting. So it was quite a big meeting. We had almost 4,000 attendees there. So it makes it the largest specialty pharmacy event that has to be in the industry. Anyone and everyone who was involved in specialty pharmacy was at this meeting. And that's really what it's what it has become. For Armada specifically, we we, uh, we released a new uh, workflow product for our specialty pharmacy customers called Armada One, which was uh, received very well by the pharmacy attendees as well. We had record numbers of uh, of pharmacies, record numbers of manufacturers, and record numbers of payers attend this year's summit. Overall, it was a great success. And how do you define specialty pharmacy? There are numerous definitions out there, but in my mind, when I think about especially pharmacy, I think about uh, patients that require either expensive and tough to manage drugs. I think that's really the nuts and bolts of it. It really started as a, as a way to manage expensive drugs. It was a channel management kind of program, but it's since evolved more to, to more patient management and process management. So if you're looking at, at a brand that uh, a pharmaceutical brand that requires either special handling special dispensing requirements, patients experience numerous side effects or, or issues with, uh, with, with taking the medication, those brands usually fall into the specialty pharmacy category. Specialty pharmacy is an organization that can provide those, those deeper level interactions and services for patients to manage those drugs. Well, that sounds very patient-centric to me. I think it is. That's really where, where uh, it was really born from. And, uh, and I think that's still the primary distinction between a specialty pharmacy and a retail pharmacy. Well, it's kind of interesting just that you're defining specialty pharmacy. What is a specialty pharmacy product based on the patient experience as opposed to it's a molecule that has lots of insert whatever here? Yeah, I, I think that's really what it is. It's really, it, it's a combination. You know, I, I think a lot of specialty drugs now are, are more driven by their mar- market sizes. So a lot of orphan drugs land there. And uh, certainly, the new biologics are, are are landing in that in that category. It's still a price sensitive market. Part of part of that is through the 
just because of the amount of work that's involved in managing these drugs and these patients, uh, it can be a, a price sensitive scenario. So that's that's still a part of that. I don't I don't know if you would. I think people would argue that a, a specialty drug would have to be priced at least twenty five hundred dollars a month or more. But I know there's some brands that are maybe a little less than that that are on the cusp there that they would benefit from specialty pharmacy services, but uh, under their current pricing points might not be able to uh, encompass all the costs that are involved. So it's got to be a drug that involves a certain complexity of patient management, as well as at a certain price point that makes it important that the patient's adhering or includes a certain risk factor or something. Absolutely. That's it. Talk about Armada. What does the Armada organization do? I mean, I know you mentioned Armada One, which is a service for specialty pharmacy. Is that primarily what you guys are up to? or That's one component of our business. Armada, Armada uh, Healthcare originally started as a GPO, so it's a group purchasing organization, specifically focused at specialty pharmacies. So we were looking for brands and products and services that a specialty pharmacy, not necessarily a retail pharmacy, but a specialty pharmacy would need and want. Armada is really the first organization that centered itself on that specific market. And from that, we've grown into a lot of other services. Along the GPO lines, we certainly provide different uh, you know, purchasing opportunities for our members, for our GPO members. But in addition to that, we offer other services as well, like our Armada One, our workflow program. So let me just, let's start, let's start there. Let's parse yeah. this out. GPO, on one side of the equation, you've got specialty pharmacies themselves. Right. I'm assuming that that might be into some independence, but mostly it's changed these days. Yeah. Like what does a specialty pharmacy look like today? You know, it's it's a broad group. So you have the large national specialty pharmacies like an Accredo, who are now wholly owned by a PBM or a healthcare company like uh, Optum, for example, is owned by uh, United Healthcare. So you have that group, right? And those are the big national players. They're primarily affiliated with a specific payer or PBM. Uh, next level is, is a, a high volume independent independent retail or specialty pharmacies, uh, Diplomat, Avella, those are probably two of the larger ones out there. And they're, they're really, while they started regionally based, they now offer national services and they contract with payers directly for those services. And then the, the next level down are, are true regional players. You've got uh, um, Echo uh, is, a, is a big player in the New York market. Uh, Elwins is in Philadelphia, Mission Road in, in California. Recept in Texas. And these are more regional players where their markets are and their businesses are pretty centered in a specific geographic area. They're still providing the full services, but again, just more focused into a specific geographic area. All those, all those companies are, are in one shape or form members or participants in our, in our MATA programs. So these are the entities that have something to, to sell. They're really true. They're just pharmacies, really what they are. They're, but they're pharmacies that provide additional services on top of just dispensing drugs. Those are the providers of services. Correct. And you're a group purchasing organization. So on the other side of the equation, who are you helping purchase the services offered by your pharmacy customers? What we particularly do is we offer we offer a conduit between a manufacturer and those pharmacies. And what, what a group purchasing organization will do, it will, it will aggregate volume through numbers of pharmacies and then and acquire a, a preferred pricing point for any particular brand. So we have farm, our members, these pharmacies will buy through Armada's GPO to access a certain brand at a certain price point. So that's at, at its purest form. That's what Armada GPO does for 
its members. Now, in addition to that, there are a large list of, of menu services that Armada provides to its, to its members as well. And it's uh, kind of a Chinese menu choices of, of, of options. Uh, we have a, we have a HIPAA and, a, and, and URAC certified uh, uh, call center that some of our members will use. We have a reimbursement program that members will use. We also have manufacturing hub services that members will participate in. So I kind of had it backwards. What you're helping your specialty pharmacy customers do is actually purchase the drugs and other wraparounds that they would that they need to operate to better service their clients, which are the payers and patients. Yes, uh-huh. I think that's it. Now, now with that said, you 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 foresaw the future in that it, while you may have had it backwards today, you have a you have it right for later because we've uh, we've now started to talk to payers. And payers have, have have recognized Armada as having a significant position in the space and relationships with all these pharmacies, and are looking to us now to potentially build networks of pharmacies to service specific geographies or diseases. So at some point, I think, and we're we're going down that road today, where we're negotiating with payers for access to certain pharmacies for certain diseases or geographies. So I think that's kind of what you were thinking. Yeah, I kind of was thinking that. And I was also thinking about it from a pharmaceutical manufacturer standpoint, because I know a lot of pharma also has very specific networks of approved pharmacies, if you will. Right. And that's the, that's the other piece of our business now as well. And that we do, we, we call that hub services. So we'll essentially, we essentially manage the drug channel for a manufacturer for a specific brand. Along that, there's certain services that Armada will provide. And one of those services is developing and managing a network of pharmacies. Say I'm a pharma customer, I would come to you instead of going out and looking at the you know hundreds of various pharmaceutical uh, pharmacy specialty pharmacy options for my very complicated orphan drug. I can just make pick up the phone, call one person at Armada, and say, "Look, these are the requirements for pharmacies that I'm looking for. This is the price I'm willing to pay. Assemble my options." Or Correct. That's exactly right. I think that's a that's a great summary of it. Because essentially, we will then we will go and uh, help define the services that are required, identify the pharmacies and the markets that need to be reached, and put in a process for that. And in addition to that, we can tap into uh, to the manufacturers, patient assistant programs, copay assistant programs, and and any other services like that. You're not only helping them buy, but you're also helping them then create the, the functioning network that they're going to need, um, you know, by providing these kind of backbone systems. Exactly. Exactly. And for a payer, would the process look very much the same? I think it'll be, it's looking like it's lining up similarly in a similar fashion. Uh, we'll still have kind of a hub central collection point where at that point there are certain components or certain services or data pieces that will be reported back to a payer. And at the same time, that will be the essentially the, the hub center to then send the script to the appropriate pharmacy. If we have a patient in Philadelphia and a patient in Arizona and Phoenix, there'll be two different pharmacies that potentially will service that. Both those pharmacies will be qualified and certified to be part of the program and meet the, meet the specific requirements to maintain access to the program. We just serve as the, uh, as the manager and monitor of the program. What happens in a situation where pharma contracts you and they come up with, you know, 10, whatever, specialty right. pharmacies, and then a payer gets involved and they come up with 10 other specialty pharmacies and a patient yeah. has that payer, but none of the specialty pharmacies approved by the payer are served by the pharma company? 
that's definitely an issue. And uh, for certain brands and certain brand types, it becomes more of an issue. I think for orphan drugs, it's not so much because the volume, patient volumes are so low. We're, we're able to work something out with either the manufacturer or the payer and find the, the appropriate pharmacy. I think that's one of the benefits that Armada brings to the table is that we have relationships with over 700 specialty pharmacies across the country with over, I believe, like 30,000 sites. So I think when, when, you, when you have that kind of map to choose from, you're able to fill those gaps in such a way. So basically what would happen would be if there's a cohort of patients that are starting to slip through that crack, somebody right. could get a hold of Armada and you could kind of broker a, a solution for Yeah, that. well, I, I think we can just bring the, the players together because we have relationships on both sides. You could figure out one pharmacy that everybody can agree on and then problem solved. There you go. Yeah. All right. So there's one question I'm, I'm dying to ask you, Ray. Sure. Um, let's talk about biosimilars. Okay. Which are obviously everyone is in pharma is concerned about and everyone on the other side of the qu equation might be rubbing their hands together. Yeah. <laughs> At our Armada Summit uh, conference here a couple weeks ago, that was that was discussed several in several different sessions. Uh, there was a session that I ran with payers where that question came up and was discussed. And uh, frankly, we had a representative from Prime Therapeutics who has done some pretty extensive research on the space. And uh, they were kind of, they, they really weren't that excited about, about their findings. I think they, they were concerned about the price points. They were concerned about the services that would be uh, provided or not provided to a particular patient. They were concerned about the, uh, the smoothness of transition, moving patients from one brand to another, and uh, what that process looks like and what FDA protections and guidelines are for that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think their biggest concern was that from their analysis, they felt that the uh, the brands needed to hit certain volume, certain dollar volumes before they would before it would really be a significant savings to anyone. And they didn't th their analysis didn't think many brands were going to be able to meet those numbers. So when you say brands, are you talking about simply the original brand? In other words, the original brand would have to have a certain volume of business in order for it to be worth the payer's while to even figure this out. Yeah. And, and they had to have to have the, the assumption that the biosimilar would be able to capture enough of that to make it significant. Well, you know, something that we had had an earlier conversation and that you had mentioned, which I had never thought about, but I thought was fascinating. You had commented that, especially with a lot of these, I mean, obviously a lot of these drugs are specialty products. And as per your definition of specialty products, they require a lot of patient management. Part of patient management, generally speaking, involves having a pretty sophisticated hub in order to, you know, manage patient needs. So if you're a biosimilar, you know, the, the thing with generics these days is that you can just create a compound and you're done, you know, put it in a bottle right. and send it out. But with these biosimilars, you can't just manufacture this very complicated, you know, medication requiring a really complicated patient protocol and then assume that patients don't need help. I think that that's, that's a huge issue. And that is uh, in the study that Prime will be publishing soon, that was a big component of their discussion was that uh, these patients are typically used to a certain level of service, not only from the pharmacies, but also from manufacturers. From my, from my previous days on the pharma side, I know that uh, we felt that those services that were built around a brand pointed at patients were very valuable and, and really served a, a great purpose in adherence. 
So how does a, uh, will the biosimilar match those programs? And if they match those programs, that's going to start eating away at the potential savings. Well, and you had mentioned something earlier also about then are you going to start winding up with branded biosimilars? Right. Because you and can't. Yeah, you know, there's certain markets like that already. Like the first that comes to mind to me is Beta Serum and, and uh, Extavia. Same brand, same products, two different manufacturers, and the price points are slightly different. Then it becomes a contracting war, which which may be where we end up. But I think you, if you look at, uh, I mean, I think the most recently, or the first release was Copaxone. Their uh, biosimilar was just released. I don't think it's in the market yet, though. They were, Copaxone or Teva was, was successful in moving a significant amount of their market out of the compromised brand into a, a new formulation. So how much is really left there to be, to be switched? Not that much. What do you see, if you're going to give advice to pharma manufacturers, you know, those with, with brands that are where biosimilars are on the move, what advice would you have? Well, you know, there's a, there's a stickiness that's available to a patient and a manufacturer. Hard to get, but when you get that and, and you're able to, to build that relationship, there seems to be value there. The reformulation route is, is certainly something that's been proven time and time again, but uh, it's, it's not a short-term fix. You've got to be planning on that over, over a significant period of time to do that. Beyond that, then, then it becomes more of a contracting strategy. And then you, you've got to make the decision is uh, at what price point is it easier to contract for a formulary position or a block as opposed to can you just fight it out at a lower position and or a, a, at a poorer formulary position and still make your still hit your budgets. So those are analysis that that. I'm, I'm, I'm sure are being done today on a regular basis. I'm sure they are. <laughs> but it's very interesting to hear that the PBMs are being relatively circumspect about, I mean, these drugs are expensive to begin with, and the most expensive yeah. drug is the one that patient either is not taking or is not taking correctly. So if you, you know, if you save a couple of bucks on the formulation, but then that could easily get wiped out if the patient isn't cared for and monitored and symptom tracked and all the other things properly. I would think uh, if I'm a payer and I've, I've gone through the process, the prior authorization process and confirmed everything and made the decision to, to allow the dispensing of this drug, it's, it should be in, our, in my best interest to maintain therapy as long as possible. At, that, at the same point, when I say as long as possible, it should be until no longer effective or cured, whatever, whatever your endpoint goal is. But there needs to be a mechanism to measure that and to make that commitment. Because you, you're right, there's no reason in starting one if you're going to fight every refill all the way through, because you, you'll, you'll end up spending more money to keep somebody off, off of therapy, and then spending money for the consequences of that patient not being on therapy later on. Okay, so second burning topic that I've been saving up for you, my friend. Okay. <laughs> Are you prepared? <laughs> I'm braced. I'm ready to go. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelts. So infusions, infusion clinics. You know, what's happening is that a lot of payers, for very good reasons, are moving certain medications, certain pharma products, which are administered within a provider office from the medical side of the benefit equation into the pharmacy side of the equation. I think there's a there's a big story around that. And I think it, if you go back to uh, uh, when uh, average sales price ASP was instituted by CMS, that was really, I think, the turning point. At that point, a lot, of, a lot of the incentive for a physician 
to buy and dispense and bill for a drug were, were, were really diminished significantly. And more so in some brand and some products and other products, but overall it, it, it reduced significantly. Manufacturers were then consequently penalized uh, by over-contracting at the physician level and their price points just were driven down, uh, were driven lower and lower and the, and the reimbursement rates got poor. So when that started happening, it, it's funny because I, I think it was, a, it was kind of a perfect storm scenario because that was really about the same time when 340B started, started exploding at the hospital, in the hospital markets. So now hospitals are, are in a better financial condition that they've, than they've been in a long time. Part of that is driven by 340B. Part of that is driven by, uh, by other factors in the market. But physicians, on the other hand, are probably in a poorer financial scenario than they've been in a long time. And particularly physicians who practice in, in infused brands like oncologists. There was a report by well, the, the Magellan Drug Trend Report noted that, that over time, there's still a, new, a high volume of physicians that are selling their practices, particularly to hospitals and moving into hospitals. What essentially that is, what that has done is that has shut down a lot of infusion center options, like a physician practice, and these patients have then migrated into hospital outpatients for their infusion services. So let's unpack that a little bit. Sure. You know, one thing that I find that many do not understand is that a significant portion of provider revenue for, as you say, you know, for example, oncology or, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or, or right. specialties that involve a lot of infused products, how a lot of providers were making a significant portion of their income was buying pharmaceutical products and then they were being paid to dispense them at, you know, ASP plus, you know, 15% or whatever it was. Right. Which is really interesting. We were working on a product one time where, and you can see exactly why this changed because a lot of the perverse incentives. So we were working on a product that reduced their prices. So this is a pharmaceutical product. They were at one price point and then they lowered their price, which you'd think would make everyone happy. Providers yeah. were having a fit. Because yeah. if they're getting paid the price of the pharmaceutical product plus 15%, yeah. then all of a sudden their reimbursement goes down. You know, what they're, right. they're, they're being paid goes down. So obviously this was somewhat of an issue. I had always thought, though, that the reason why reimbursement started to move from a medical benefit to a pharmacy benefit was more because payers had no control and no ability to monitor or track pharmaceutical use. I thought it was more for that. That's a big part of it, Stacey. And, and frankly, the uh, the visibility and the information and data that's that's available to a bank, to a payer on the pharmacy side is much stronger and better developed and more elegant than it is on the payer side. Uh, so that's that that was certainly the initial driver. At the end of the day, also, I mean, if you look at medical billing, primarily the billing is done on a, on a per vial basis, which can get kind of messy sometimes, particularly with multi-dose vials. And uh, or patients who maybe don't use a full vial, while on the pharmacy side, it's always billed by the prescription. So you get a very specific, uh, the exact amount is billed for that particular patient. And uh, there's really little or no wastage. So it, it, it's all, it's that piece that was, I think, the start of the trend, just the, uh, the better visibility, uh, better data, better understanding of what your spend is. But o over time, it's picked, it's picked up momentum because of this side of service, side of care issue, uh, where costs are just are, are, are skyrocketing for payers in markets that they weren't before, primarily driven by side of care. And what you mean by that is that 
now providers, you know, in ambulatory practices where patients were walking in and they were getting paid to administer these drugs, it doesn't make sense for the provider to do so anymore. It's just really where those there's been very little management of this time of that. And primarily because most patients got their got their infusions done at their doctor's offices. And now it's not financially viable for the provider to do that anymore. I mean, they're not getting right. they're not really getting paid enough to well, many, get the infrastructure and the personnel in order to make that. Yeah, as these offices have sold their practices and moved into hospitals, the only option is, or the, the, their first and easiest option is to be at the uh, outpatient center at the hospital, which to a payer is the highest price point. Was this effort to curb costs by payers actually winding up costing them more? Is that what? In, indirectly, yes. And really, it's it just a simple fact that, that as physicians move to hospitals, and their their first option was to use the outpatient center right downstairs, for example, or, or across the campus, uh, and no longer bill from their office. Uh, that made the huge difference. It, just, it was just a, it, it was it was a consequence of the res, uh, it was a result of the consequence that happened. Now, so now that's where specialty pharmacy comes in play because many of our infusion pharmacies they have nurses in place, they have chairs in place, and they have relationships with the infusion centers and physicians. So a payer would be able to dictate by brand, by product, where that infusion should take place. Uh, there are many that can be that can be uh, done at a patient's home, which is, you know, certainly to a patient would probably be a, be their first choice. Um, and uh, especially many of our, most of our specialty pharmacies have nurses in place that would be able to do that. Okay, so here's the evolution sped up at, you know, 5x speed. Before, Providers were doing their own infusions, getting paid, you know, ASP plus 15 percent, making a lot of money. Payers get wind of this and they're like, wow, this is costing us a fortune. They shut that down and say, we're going to move it over to the pharmacy benefit. So no more 15 percent. Providers are like, fine. They shut it down. They say, now, patient, you got to go to the hospital. You got to go to the hospital and sit in their infusion clinic because we're not getting paid to do this anymore. So all the patients start showing up at the hospital, and the hospital is enabled to charge a higher price. So it actually winds up being pretty expensive for the payers anyway. So then payers start looking around for another solution, and they eyeball specialty pharmacy. Is Is that kind of the... Wait, wait. That's that's about right. I, th- I mean, the big change was when it went from AWP pricing, so average wholesale price minus 13, 14, 15 percent. Uh, that was a number you were quoting earlier. Uh, and it changed to ASP pricing, which is average sales price plus 6 percent, I think, is where it started out at. And today it's at 4.3. Pretty much the money just, uh, you know, there was all the fat was taken out of that. You yeah, know. you're right. Sorry. It was it used That's to be right. AWP plus 15% and now it's AWP. Right. Yeah, sorry. I misspoke. No worries. That's also interesting that part of the services that specialty pharmacies are taking on is actually providing those patient infusions not only within their own locations but also at home. That's a whole new space. It it, it really is. And 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 I think, you know, I I know many pharmacies who have a uh, nurses that are specialized in specific diseases, so they have an, an oncology specialist. And uh, this nurse is highly trained in oncology drugs and oncology infusions and is able to do many of those infusions in, right in the patient's home, which for some of these infusions, they can take, uh, you know, some are very short, 15, 20 minutes, some are, uh, are several hours. So having, having the ability to do that service at a patient's home uh, is a great advantage. 
I can only imagine. I mean, not only just because you're in your home for several hours instead of sitting in a vinyl chair someplace, but also because if you if the infusion causes you to be dizzy or whatnot, just getting a ride home. I mean, that's a whole level of complication that must be very difficult for patients. It adds a lot. Now, not not every brand, brand is able to be serviced that way, but the ones that are, I think it's a great advantage for everyone, everyone concerned. I mean, I think your price points are, are at a good point for everyone. Uh, the patient is better served and, uh, uh, and would certainly be more compliant at the end. How much of the specialty pharmacy business is actually location-based? In other words, it's brick and mortar. And how much of it is either mail order or I sign up for my home infusion online and someone comes out. What what does the specialty pharmacy look like these days physically? The majority of them, the larger ones are mail order based, but they're not not doing infusion brands. They may have divisions that do that, but uh, that's kind of a different service. The infusion brand services are all very local. You have a timing issue, you have have, uh, temperature control issues and all that. So, I mean, I, I would be hard-pressed to see a, an infusion pharmacy that can effectively service a market greater than a 200-mile radius of any particular site. Now, uh, for oral brands, you know, oral cancer drugs, the orals, the orals available in, in MS or self-injectable drugs like the old MS drugs, those are those have a mail-order component. Uh, probably a, a majority of the lives are serviced via mail-order, but most of them tap into manufacturer nursing services to provide training and support. I think that's the distinction. If a brand is provided mail order, then most of the communication with the patient happens telephonically. Is that how it works? Correct. So drug gets sent out and then someone calls the patient and says, okay, you know, these are the things you want to look out for and calls back if this happens. Right. I think, uh, you know, most larger, the larger regional and larger national specialty pharmacies all have well-trained call centers. And the call centers consist of reimbursement experts helping patients with a with copay assistance and programs like that, insurance issues, and clinical support programs, uh, nurses or farm techs who are answering specific questions or concerns of a patient. And will that model, I mean, I can almost imagine that you could be a local specialty pharmacy without necessarily a brick and mortar location. I mean, there's plenty of businesses that have an online presence, but then, you know, people go visit the patient yeah. in the home. Like no one actually shows up in the physical location. Is that kind of a future trend or? There's a trend right now. I know that Caremark CVS has started a trend or has uh, started seeing a different type of service as does Walgreens where they allow patients the option to pick up their, their specialty brands at a local pharmacy. So Caremark oh. can potentially ship a product to the CVS down the street from your house and allow you to pick it up there. So that that's kind of starting out, and I, I think they're just they're patients who want that personal contact, right? And I, I think the big trend now in the specialty industry, I think, uh, are you familiar with uh, with uh, drug channels? Dr. Adam Fine's uh, blog. He stated a few years ago that if you're an independent retail pharmacy, you really need to start moving into specialty pharmacy. And if you're going to become a specialty pharmacy, you have two choices: you either get big real fast. Like a like a diplomat or or an acaria or a avella, or you get very very specialized, and by that means you focus on a handful of diseases and do those extremely well. And I think that holds true. That 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 is held true over time. If you look at our membership, we have the big general, uh, the diplomats and the credos type pharmacies, 
And in addition to that, we also have other pharmacies that are that are managing several thousand HIV lives, and that's all they do. And that, I think, makes total sense. And it's a pretty universal principle, but it's amazing how many people forget about it, that you either are big enough to capture a lion's share of a general market or, you know, you'll find the riches in the niches. You, you have to find a competitive advantage yep. that you can communicate and attract enough buyers who understand that that competitive advantage. Yeah, as the as healthcare industry starts moving more and more towards value and really trying to find a way to pay for value as opposed to pay for services, uh, that bodes well for those members and uh, pharmacies that are doing that. Um, they're positioning themselves very well into those markets. Uh, they're very successful in what they do already. I mean, like I say, we have uh, our infusion guys are probably some of our fastest for going pharmacies today. And right behind them are the guys that are that are managing very select specific diseases. So there's there's still a space for them, and uh, and what differentiates differentiates them from from the masses are the are the services and capabilities that they put forward. It's amazing though how many larger organizations who you really think would know better are still embarking on marketing strategies or or customer acquisition strategies that involve something along the lines of it's a very large market if we can only capture five percent of it will we will. <laughs> Never seen that work. Old habits are hard to change. <laughs> I guess so. I am. I am hard pressed to to uh, stop the eye roll that I feel building up. In my <laughs> that's where we, that's where we rely we rely on a uh, on expert marketeers like yourself. Oy <laughs> vey. Um, where can if people are interested in learning more about Armada, either from the our listener as a specialty pharmacist or a pharmacist that's that's looking to refine their offerings into the specialty pharmacy space or their manufacturer, you know, where can people find out information about Armada? Armada Healthcare obviously has our website. I think that's probably the best place to start. Uh, Armada is on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, all of those are all good places to which whichever your preference of. Uh, connecting to the world is, you can find uh, Armada there. Our Armada Summit continues to be the, the, you know, the industry leader in the market. And uh, we open registration here uh, 1st of June, so ready for Armada 16 on the way. And that, that's, that's just a great learning opportunity. There, there are three, three full days of sessions uh, covering anything and everything in the specialty industry. So I think uh, once, once someone experiences that for the first time, they really get a a picture and an idea of what uh, what's involved in the space, and that's the big question: is are you are you ready to commit to that space? Is this really where you want to go? Is this is this uh, are you ready to take the steps to go that direction? Because it's not an easy path. And that is sage advice. Obviously, there's whenever any new direction or, or any organization pivots, you you can't get yourself into a grass is always greener scenario. You really have yeah. to evaluate. You know, there are a lot of pharmacies that, that make the mistake of, you know, they happen to have a, an embryo patient walk in and decide they want to be into specialty. And then they find out what it really takes to manage all those patients, so that, that type of life. And uh, all of a sudden find themselves upside down very quickly. There's nothing worse than biting off more than your yeah. organization is, abil- is able to scale to, especially when, when lives are at stake. I've seen it happen. Tread carefully, but once you work your way through it and make that commitment, it, it, it's a nice place to be. It's a good, uh, it's a good business to be, particularly for an independent uh, 
pharmacy, I think there's, there's, there are still areas of services that you can provide in your particular community and, uh, and uh, feel good about what you're providing and also make a nice profit. As usual, Ray, I don't think I ever have a conversation with you where I don't jot down a page of notes. So I thank <laughs> you. <laughs> I thank you so much for being on the program today. I appreciate that, Stacey. You take care. Links to everything discussed during the episode today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. I'll tell you the other thing that you will find at RelentlessHealthValue.com, and that is a way to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe, the cool thing is that you don't have to remember to go to the website every week to download the new episode. It will automatically be sent to you in one of two ways. The first way is you can type in your email address in the, there's a, a sidebar on the right hand side of the website where you will find a place that you could type in your email address and then you will get an email once a week with a, a link to download the episode. So that's one way to go. The second is also in that same right hand sidebar on the Relentless Health Value website, you will find a large orange dot. If you click on that dot, then you'll get taken to a place where you can click on the subscribe button in iTunes. If you click on that, then each week your iTunes will automatically download the episode, which you could choose to listen to on your computer or on the podcast app on your mobile phone. If you enjoyed this episode, please, I beg you, uh, it would be really, really helpful if you would rate and review the show either on iTunes or interact with us on Twitter. Our uh, Twitter handle is Relentless with only one S, health. So Relentless with only one S, health. I would love to hear from you. It, we would find it very inspiring over here at the Relentless Health Value podcast. I thank you so much for tuning in and so much for spending the time with us. Thank you.